everything's eventual. Given time and room to grow, things we once thought impossible become inevitable. And as we gaze into the rearview mirror of history, we recognize that the mistakes of our past are never too far behind, always ready to mutate into something new and sometimes utterly dreadful. The rise of fascism in the 1930s was characterized by the emergence of totalitarian regimes in Europe, led by dictators such as Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, who exploited economic crises and social unrest to gain power. Today, the rise of fascism takes on a different form, as far-right populist movements and authoritarian leaders are gaining support in many countries around the world. While the political and economic context is different, there are some striking similarities between the two eras, including the scapegoating of minority groups, the rejection of democratic norms and institutions, and the use of propaganda to manipulate public opinion. The lessons of history remind us of the dangers of complacency in the face of authoritarianism and the need to defend democracy and human rights. You know I've had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Andrew Bard Schmuckler on the show several times before, but this discussion feels different from our past conversations. It's more focused, more direct in its subject matter. We're talking about fascism in all its different forms and the alarming rise of this dark force in American politics and around the world. Dr. Schmuckler has been sounding the alarm since 2004, and I think we agree it's more important now than ever to recognize, call out, and deal with it. In this episode, we explore why fascism is on the rise and what we can do to fight against it. See, because I mentioned in the very opening that everything is inevitable, while that may mean fascism is primed for a comeback, it also means its defeat is just as inevitable. The question is, can we beat it back in this generation? Because if not, then Gen Z might be our last great hope. We ask these questions and more, but find out for yourself, and I hope you enjoy the Dr. Andrew Bard Schmuckler with Jay Berkshire. Watch out, you might get what you're after. Welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with new knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Today, we are honored to have back once again, Dr. Andrew Bard Schmuckler. Andy is a renowned author, former Democratic candidate for Congress in Virginia's conservative Shenandoah Valley, former talk radio host, and summa cum laude graduate of Harvard University. He was also awarded a PhD with distinction for his groundbreaking research on the development of human civilization. Dr. Schmuckler is a frequent columnist in newspapers across the United States, and today we have the privilege of delving into his experiences, insights, and unique perspective on the world. Andy, welcome back. It's always good to see you. Well, I'm glad to be back. Like I said, it's good to have you back, even if we're 
not always talking about good things, but uh, seeing seeing reality for what it is has its own kind of reward. Yeah, and and that's what I've been working to be able to to present at least some dimensions of of reality that we need to look at. It must be frustrating though to look at reality and see it the way you do and find that people don't see it the same way. Well, the what's frustrating uh, ultimately I mean I feel like I get my uh, appreciations, you know, enough from enough people that I don't that I feel like, you know, seen. But what is frustrating is that I think that some of the perspective that I've developed over the last half century could actually help increase the odds that human civilization would survive or more immediately that American democracy will survive. Mm. Though I don't feel as much like a voice on uh, in the wilderness about that as I did for a number of years when I saw something rising. Everybody who has got their head on half straight sees now. Yeah, I think it took a while for the people who were going to see it. It might have took a while for some of them to get on board, but I think I think they're there now. Yeah, it's, it's right in front of us. There's there are serious threats to American democracy that um, are different from any that we faced in our history. Certainly, the 1850s and the Civil War showed one kind of crisis, mm-hmm. uh, which I have studied in some depth because there's a lot of overlap between that crisis and the one that we're in. But uh, this one is uh, a more serious threat to the survival of the very idea that founded the country. You know, in the 1850s, there was a question of whether there would be a, a split of the country into one part that was continuing. The American experiment, you know, the, like Lincoln's address at Gettysburg spoke of, you know, and then there was a possibility that there would be this other thing that it had been had been part of America that was going to break off and become, you know, the slave power empire, uncombined with the the idea that all men are created equal, you know, shall perish from the earth. You know, it wasn't it wasn't going to perish from the earth because. Lincoln did have the union. Worst come to worst, that was still going to survive. Right now, you know, there's still a po- there's really now a possibility that the whole thing might be overrun by a fascistic force. It's also a strange development because, at least in the 1850s, the battle lines were drawn between North and South. Right? I mean. There was, there was a geographical, geographical uh, dividing line. Yeah. yeah. Here, it's like, so when somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about a national divorce, which which I don't even want to give it too much thought because it's ridiculous, it wouldn't even be geographically possible because there's just so many. The only way that would work is if we became like Europe and just divided into a bunch of different country states, I guess, right? I mean, yeah, she's, she was talking about red states and blue states. And, you know, of course, there are red states and blue states, but not like there was a Mason-Dixon line. Right, right. <laughs> and and was, even, I find that, that red state, blue state a misnomer, too, because it's almost become rural versus, I guess, urban or city divide. And Well, I mean, you could look at it that way, too. I mean, the urban-rural divide... Uh, which I think is in need of more explanation than, than we got, but but anyway, that's a whole topic yeah. in itself, and I don't think we need. I've to go seen there. that. I've seen that come down to education sometimes. Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of ways cleaving it, but you can say that, for example, 
you know, Wyoming goes three to one uh, Republican, right. and, and and California is a you know reliably uh, uh, overwhelmingly blue in Massachusetts. You know, we can we can make a map, and it has a lot of correlation with the Confederacy, but um, nonetheless, true. I live in Virginia. Which is a, become a blue state. I think the 2021 election was an, an anomaly for reasons, I, which is also not worth going into. Yeah. But I got my analysis of it. But we've become a, a, a reliably blue state. But, you know, to say that, you know, in a typical election, it might be, I don't know exactly what Virginia would be, 53, 47, you know, Democratic. But that obscures the fact that uh, if you look at the map on election night, the largest acreage area on that map is red. Uh, and I live in that red, but the votes pile in from metropolitan Washington, you know, Northern Virginia is a huge pocket of population. And then there's uh, Hampton Roads and Richmond, the cities. So you can, there's no way of dividing this. We're, we're stuck with each other. Right. We are really stuck with each other. James McPherson and I have had a correspondence um, over the years occasionally. I don't even know if he'd recognize my name, but he might because we've had three different exchanges over the last 20 years. In one of them, I said I thought that Lincoln really, I mean, certainly with the benefit of hindsight, but I think that maybe Lincoln should have just let the, the Confederacy go, negotiate a settlement that was going to keep them in their place, but say, here are the terms and, you know, let him go. He, he disagreed with me and he, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for his knowledge of that. And I can make a case against it too, but that was such a nightmare. But, uh, we're going to have to live with each other now. And, um, I feel like the solution is to, well, first of all, to defeat the fascistic force that, um, has arisen politically, just got to mm-hmm. defeat it. But when I did talk radio here in the Shenandoah Valley, I came to love a lot of the conservatives that I talked to and Mm -hmm. appreciate things about them. And in the years since then, they have been led into a very dark place. And to be a healthy society, we're going to need to have those people move back into a different kind of a place that the like the one that they were in when I was talking with them on the radio that was still basically continuous with, let's just say, Republicans of a, of the age of Eisenhower. Yeah. When I was uh, learning about the Republican Party because I was, you know, starting to read a newspaper. Uh, and then even when Reagan and the first Bush were president, there, there was something about conservative America that was, you know, if you looked at it, you would think, well, you know, American democracy is going to survive okay. The Democrats will win some elections. The Republicans will win some elections. And and th- sometimes things will go better and some things will, sometimes things will go worse. But the basic name of the game will be the same, you know, that our founders had in mind. And then we lost that. Yeah. You know, it's funny, though. So I understand the Eisenhower Republicans. And I've mentioned before, I grew up in a very conservative household, although my parents could be a little more open-minded. Um, I kind of get what happened with the Reagan revolution from the seventies. You know, you had the stagflation. There was a lot of changes going on in the world as far as us on the political stage, 
you know, between the Watergate was, and, and the Cold the, War turned the corner, right? And, and yeah, the oil embargo and stuff. And I, and I think I think Nixon's Nixon and then Ford pardoning Nixon also helped foster this big distrust in government. And I kind of get where Reagan came in and said, you know, government's the problem and where people might have understood that. However, when you look at Reagan compared to the Republicans in the 90s and then the Republicans now, I mean, they're not even close to that person. You know what I mean? They, they, he was willing to at least negotiate with well, people. Well, see, we were um, – when Reagan was saying government was a problem, which led to um, Clinton saying in the 1990s, the era of big government mm. is over. That was a representative of a, of a fight about policy. Which was like normal politics. We, you know, the, the battle, uh, between, um, American corporate capitalism, yeah. uh, wanting not to be regulated goes back to the post civil war era and, and, you know, the Sherman antitrust act and the progressives and, uh, uh Teddy Roosevelt and, and, and then, uh, with, with the depression, the FDR, uh, starts, you know, gets a Supreme Court that will uphold the idea that the, uh, that the government has a, an important role to play. And that's been, you know, fought over between Republicans representing big business and the Democrats trying to rein in the power of unbridled capitalism. That's, you know, that's basic normal American politics for more than a century. Well, the Republican Party changed in a way so that in 2020, they had no platform, but whatever Trump says, you know, it's, that's remarkable. You know, that's, that's really, we don't court, the Republicans have not been about policy. Yeah. I've, for, for, for a long while. Yeah. Not to, to cut about, you off. It's culture war all the time with them. At well, this that's point. just a way of manipulating the, their followers well, to get power. There's no it's policy. about fascism. Yeah. Or the word fascism, I mean, we could talk about what that means. I, I use it kind of broadly. When I was uh, in radical times in Berkeley, uh, living there in the late 60s and early 70s, I rejected the idea of describing the government of the United States as fascistic. I thought the Vietnam War was lousy, and it was lousy for some reasons that uh, put some some aspects of American establishment in a bad light. but. It wasn't about fascism. I thought that that kind of lefty talk was misguided. Yeah. You know, Hubert Humphrey was not a fascist. <laughs> uh, even Richard Nixon wasn't in that direction. But we have entered a new era where we're actually facing a different kind of a force. And that force points in the direction of a battle as old as civilization. What's happening in America is part of a larger global problem. Yeah. Where India, the world's largest democracy, is becoming an authoritarian state where a descendant of Indira Gandhi gets kicked out of uh, parliament for the way he criticized the prime minister Modi and his government. It's, it's a country in which the Israeli democracy is being fought over right as we speak with a fascistic coalition that Israel's longest serving prime minister put together for his own self-serving purposes, sold out to the most extreme people who used to be beyond the pale. 
and is trying to turn Israeli democracy in a direction that has got hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. So our battle and the battle that we've seen fought out in Brazil over Bolsonaro kind of fascistic government and in Turkey, where Ataturk established a uh, secular state mm-hmm. that was democratic, has been turned into a sort of a one-party state, which is still democratic enough that it might be overturned by by ballots, but it's not clear it can be. Anyway, this is a global struggle. Yeah, I, we tend to forget in America that it is a global issue. And I wonder, you know, being a man who studied civilizations and uh, history, what do you see as a similarity between, let's say, what happened in the 30s? Because remember, at some point after, we'll say, after the stock market crash in 29, Nazism, Mussolini-type fascism, it was kind of appealing to people for a little while before it became what it was. There were there were some fascistic uh, elements that rose in the United States yeah. and in Great Britain, but those democracies uh, made it, and the German and the Italian and the Japanese, and the French were uh, had their strong fascistic elements. Yep. Anyway, where do you want to take that? Well, I'm just saying, do you see similarities in the world between that now, or do you consider this more like? I don't know if I would call it soft fascism, where there's elements of democracy baked into it. No, I think that our our current situation, it, it is similar. I have some trouble satisfying myself that I understand why democracy has been so threatened by fascism over the last 20 years. I have some ideas about it, but it feels kind of mysterious in a way that leads me to talk about something which is a, a, a word for a mystery, which is the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. the spirit of the times. But let me just say, in this instance, you have parts of the world that seem like they're so separate, uh, you know, like Turkey and India and Brazil or something like that. What's going on that connects them, because it doesn't seem like it's just a coincidence that we have these phenomena in in countries that have no obvious connection. So I have some pieces of an idea of why why this would happen. But back in the 30s, you know, there was the Great Depression. There were the reverberations of World War One. certainly be very important in the German case. But, you know, the Italians were on the winning side of that war. So there's some mystery then too, you know, why, why did uh, Germany, you know, the Axis powers uh, all the way over to Japan, which had not been a participant in World War I. So uh, there are mysteries in the world. I mean, I've, I've written about zeitgeists. Why is it that the, the image of the detective that Freud embodied in raising psychoanalysis, why was that contemporaneous with the emergence of uh, Sherlock Holmes in the Victorian detective story. I think there are connections, and I think that our world is is so filled with interconnections that we are not aware of that sometimes the explanation just goes beyond our ken. But in the case of these times, I would point to two things that fortified fascism and weakened democracy in the last 20 years. 
First, the main world embodiment of fascism over that period has been Russia. Russia had this apparent chance for democracy. To me, the end of the Cold War and the beginnings of what might be a Russian democracy, the Russian democracy was one of the most wonderful components of it. I mean, I was glad to be able to not have to think about nuclear war. Mm. I was glad that the Cold War had come to a peaceful conclusion. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't something that, that I grew up taking for granted. But I also was delighted to think that the Russians might at last have a humane democratic government where the will of the people was dominant, like our founders wanted it to be, and not the way it had been during the time of the Tsars or Lenin or uh, certainly Stalin and the whole post-Stalinist uh, Soviet era. Oh, I thought that was great. But, for a variety of reasons, democracy failed. Yeltsin handed over the reins to this guy, Putin, and Putin showed himself very astute at amassing power, mm-hmm. developing a kleptocracy, and then gradually reasserting the Russian superpower role in the world after it had crumbled with uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin. And he played well the hands the cards he was dealt. You know, he reestablished the Russians as a power in Syria. You know, they had a foot in the Middle East again, and he was good at messing with with Western democracies, all the way to actually perhaps giving America the complete disaster of a Trump Trump presidency. Mm. I mean, I don't know if we would have had Trump without Putin and his machinations, but it was a close call that we got Trump, and Putin had a multi-pronged campaign to help him. So, wow, what a coup. I think history will suggest that his ploys with the 2016 campaign put Putin at the maximal return on geopolitical meddling return uh, investment. So I think he showed that if you want to be a big power in the world, you can succeed as a fascist dictator. I think he also just had the right element. The invasion of Ukraine happened. I, I started reading up on Russian history a bit. And I read a book called um, The Future is History by, I think, Masha Gessen. And um, and it was interesting. They never really had experience with democracy or capitalism or, or anything like that. And well, It was going to be a big transition if it, they were to make it. It was, but one of the th- book chronicles the collapse of the Communist Party, and it goes all the way up to the Putin era. Uh, one of the interesting points made in that book was that uh, state ideology was treated almost like religious doctrine. So citizens would tolerate poor living conditions because they believed they were contributing to this creation of a utopian society and based on equality. Uh, so then in the 90s, when Gorbachev released all the state secrets, uh, which was an attempt to create this more open society that uh, embraced freedom, it led to the exposure of a lot of the atrocities committed during the communist regime. So people got to see the the Soviet Union as as almost the bad guy, but their whole life they were taught the mother country was always right and that they were the ones who were on, on the side of good. And then Russia was also transitioning to this capitalist economy and 
These factors together meant that Russians who had dedicated their lives to communism were now feeling abandoned and betrayed. So it's crazy to think about living in a country that can just change so drastically in such a short period of time. Putin and out to say, you know, um, look, democracy doesn't really work and capitalism doesn't really work. And I can fix that. Well, there are a lot of things that went on. It was, it was very disappointing. I, I think the United States probably could have conducted itself with respect to helping Russia make the transition. I agree. I've never had the opportunity to talk to the kind of expert, but I was observing it at the time and I, and I wasn't sure we were doing very well by them. I think there was still, you know, let's keep them down. We beat them. Let's keep them on the mat. They had been our competitors. But, you know, the Russian culture also has its great momentum. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the nightmares that the, that the Russian people have lived under and the kind of patriotism that their oppressors have developed in their minds could be exploited. So I don't, you know, I don't pretend to understand fully, but in any event, in terms of the global situation we we're talking about, the fact is that from the year 2000 till his disastrous invasion of Ukraine, which is really going to be a blow in taking fascism down, I think, that a lot of countries could look to Russia and say, you can succeed this way. If not the countries, at least rulers interested in power and becoming big players in the world scene, being winners, you know, and domestically and globally. And that, a lot of people in power, uh, you know, are people who care about those things. So meanwhile, the great world champion of democracy, not that we're the most democratic society in the world, but we're the ones that the French sent the Statue of Liberty to. And for good reasons. And we're the ones that Lincoln talked about as, you know, the last great hope on earth. And we're the ones who fought World War I to make the world safe for democracy and who have been the leaders of the free world and all that stuff, which all of which has some truth to it. Anyway, we were the paradigmatic democracy. And between 2000 and the election of Joe Biden, we were not a very impressive spectacle as a champion of democracy. We had George W. Bush's regime, which was, I think, criminal in many ways. Yeah. Um, they look good in retrospect compared yeah. to today's Republican Party, but the, there was in the 90s, I saw Limbaugh and the propagandists rising, and I devoted myself against that. But I had no idea that something like even the Bush presidency, let alone the Trump presidency, was a possibility. It was in 2004 that I saw, uh-oh, this is something new. And we started a war in Iraq with great arrogance and botched it. America's image in the world took a huge beating. I happen to think that's where the big downfall happened for us because we probably had a chance to do something after September 11th. We had everyone on our side. The country was united. This country we was united. Right. Yep. And, and he and Bush deliberately forfeited that d division. I mean, yes. I, I never, ever see anybody point this out. I know. But the, but the reality is that in the year tw 2002, when the, the rally around the flag thing was still going on, 
He made the decision. Carl Rove, I suppose, has his fingerprints on it. Maybe Dick Cheney. Mm -hmm. But W was the guy who chose to have those two as the the major forces in his uh, presidency. So W's got the full responsibility. Anyway, they they decided to use 9-11 and the whole war on terror as a partisan issue. Yes. And that whole business about making everybody vote to authorize the use of force before the 2002 election is a disgrace. Yeah. And they really boxed in everybody they could when they did that. Yeah, right? They made them know, look Hillary, like yep. John Kerry, Biden, you know, you know everybody okay. voted for it. And then they all, yeah. And then we have the highest levels of American government uh, sanctioning the use of torture. Mm-hmm. And lying us into a war, though that whole picture is complicated. I'm not going to go into that. Right. And then we get the election of Barack Obama. I thought, thank God, we have saved ourselves from the fascistic force that mm-hmm. we have been watching. I was working full time. I had a website. I write, wrote, you know, thousands of words a week on called NoneSoBlind.org. But it turned out that uh, Barack Obama, though extremely intelligent and one of the most decent people ever to occupy the American presidency, had no idea what he was up against and seemed to have no idea how to deal with an opposition like the Republican Party had become. Yeah. And that actually set the stage for the rise of a Donald Trump. But anyway... The point is, the Republicans were able to to have across-the-board obstructionism against Barack Obama, who was never proposing anything that was for which there couldn't be made a very strong case that it was good for the country. Whether it was the best possible thing for the country, you know, like the Affordable Care Act versus having a public option in it. Okay, he was trying to reach out to the Republicans to make America unified in moving forward. Oh, what the hell. That across-the-board obstructionism showed that we couldn't accomplish much of anything. What he did accomplish, the Affordable Care Act, the Republicans were able to get away with calling for its repeal. I mean, we don't repeal decent legislation that was a culmination of a, a decision, a national decision making process of the first order. That's what democracy is supposed to do. But they were going to repeal it and they never had to pay a price for the ridiculousness of that. The complete cheatingness of that, the, the way they lied about it, death panels and all that. Anyway, American democracy did, has not looked good. Mm-hmm. And still looks very vulnerable. But we got a president who knows how the world system. He's played, he's been in the American government for almost 50 years yeah. at uh, almost every level. And he's done an actually pretty credible job. So the American democracy is sort of making a comeback, though everybody's worried about, you know, America's back, like Biden said. But for how long? It isn't clear. The battle between democracy and fascism is still very much ongoing in this country, even though the fascist powers are in disgrace because of the Putin's war crimes and bungling and complete misjudgment of almost everything in that situation. And he's made a disgrace for his country that its, its reputation will take decades to recover. And the American democracy is coming back and looking like, wow, 
That was quite an achievement, what Biden did as leader of the free world in preparing even before the invasion, getting everything in, in, in place so that fascism would be punished and not rewarded for an unprovoked aggression against a people that was hankering for freedom. Mm-hmm. So that's the battle as I see it, laying out a, a big picture. Well, I think it, it'll be interesting for American democracy in the next that's going to be the few years with Donald Trump right now. And it, now he's indicted the first president to be indicted. But this isn't the case to me that's going to show no. that fascist element. Honestly, the Georgia case is, if you know, if you hey, did reading up on it. Yeah, everything having to do with the election. Will yeah. Be yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't think enough people know. And the one thing that's going to be coming out and with, with that case is you can see how far they were willing to go and tried to poke holes in the democracy wherever they could from try, from trying to get together, uh, fake sets of electorates to. He's a cheater. Out. He's always been a cheater. Yeah. And, and, and this case in Manhattan isn't, it's the least of his crimes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of like you, you, the basic sleazeball he's always been. Yeah. But, it, but it did affect a, a, a presidential election. So, yes. you know, it's not nothing. No, it and isn't nothing. Tax fraud and stuff like that. But I think it's not going to matter that this lesser crime is the first one. But, well, that's the only thing I worry about is that if we indict him over and over and over again that some people are just going to turn it off. And the important ones, the important indictments, I believe, are coming sooner or later. But I I don't know if that's a good thing to say either, because he should pay for the crimes he commits. He shouldn't be above the law. I I suppose that if I had my druthers, if I was, you know, able to orchestrate the whole thing, I I wouldn't have this Manhattan thing. Yeah. Be very, but you know, what I say and and what I've said in a piece that's in the newspapers this weekend is that what he did surrounding the the election are the worst crimes ever committed in the United States. Oh, I haven't ever written about. You know, we always talk about Benedict Arnold, you know, if you study American history, he still trotted out, uh, you know, in, in, in your eighth grade history class as a traitor, you know. Yeah. He's nothing compared to Trump. So anyway, I've never made that point publicly. I, I would make moment. a point that Nixon is probably nothing compared to Trump at this point. Oh, oh, wait, definitely. That's definitely the case. But I think that I would go out on a limb and say it's 50-50 that by Memorial Day, there will be indictments handed down in the more important cases. Yeah. Uh, the one in Georgia, I, I'm going to bet. And I think Jack Smith will be, have brought back, brought down, um, at least the uh, the obstruction of justice on the stolen yeah. documents uh, case. Yeah, it's um, pretty pretty it, clear cut on that one. Yeah, they got the testimony from Corcoran. Uh, yeah, Corcoran uh, didn't uh, seem to have chosen, you know, to plead the fifth. Uh, they don't. We haven't heard that they had to grant him immunity. So what these basically must have said is, my client lied to me to, to lie to you. So there's the crime. You know, there it is. But the biggest deals will be the Georgia case and the various things having to do with uh, the, election the election because that is an attack on the very foundations of American democracy. 
It's beyond cheating. It's an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. Now, I grew up in an America where that phrase was a big deal to overthrow the government of the United States. That was the whole Red Scare thing, you know, that Republicans especially were salivating to punish people for, to overthrow the government of the United States. That's what Trump tried to do. People are going to forget about, well, how big a deal was it to pay off a porn star. Yeah. As every day, you know, there'll be filings from the Trump people in these cases. And that will give the opportunity for the prosecutors, just like happened with the case in when that Florida judge was trying to impede, uh, you know, them getting materials. The, the prosecutors aren't free to speak except in court. Yeah. The defense attorneys can get out on the steps of the courthouse uh, every day and say all kinds of garbage, but the prosecutors can't get into a toe to toe with them. Yeah. But the Trump people are going to try to delay things and that's going to require them to put out filings and the prosecutors then get to respond to the filings and they can say all kinds of things that are true and that the American people are going to be getting day after day after day. And that's going to be interesting to watch. Well, I think it probably helps him martyr himself to a certain base of Republicans, but nationally, that'll hurt the I, Republican Party, I would think. Right. We, we saw in 2022 yeah. that there are people who would be ready to vote Republican, like they'll vote for a Governor Kemp in Georgia, but five or six percent of those people weren't willing to vote for, uh, what's his name, Herschel Walker. Yeah. And likewise, you know, they're supportive of Sununu in New Hampshire as a governor. But they're not going to vote for some crazy, yeah, who's who's way out there on the mag. So I think I think we're done with crazy, partly too. It's just what is it? I don't like that it's a close call. I'm 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 unhappy with the fact that you know the Republicans. I think are going to nominate Trump. I don't know that it look. You know, I think you're yeah, right. It looks that, like it. That, that there's a rallying around that we can see so far with the first indictment. And this guy uh, that I respect a lot is a former, I don't know about right wing, but at least conservative talk radio host uh, from Wisconsin, a guy named Charlie Sykes. He made a very eloquent uh, statement about what he foresaw for the Republican Party. It was so good that I called my wife down I, and, and played it again. He was so good about this. He said, well, the Republicans are going to be stuck with what they're running on is Trump. And there won't be any room for them to bring up any issues that they could have brought up. And the Trump thing is going to be ugly. Yeah. My hope is that the Republicans are stuck being the party of Trump. He's like a poison pill they've swallowed, and it's, it's going to kill them. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I do too. But I've been wrong before, first of all. So I, I thought it would be good if Trump were the nominee in 2016. So I know yeah. I can be wrong. But I look at the 2022 election and I say, there's an American majority that's going to reject that. So I think that 2024 is going to go well for the Democrats which means it's going to go well for American democracy because the Republican base is failing the moral test that I wrote about this weekend. Either they don't care that he's a criminal, that they don't care that he's an enemy of, um, of the basic American values, or they're buying the big lie that he's telling this time that this is just his enemies going after him. 
American force be, for the rule of law has been too weak and not aggressive enough for a long time. And this is a required battle for them to fight. You can see that Garland has been reluctant to take on Trump. You can see that Bragg has been reluctant to take on Trump. Jack Smith is not reluctant to no. take on Trump, but he didn't get the job until Garland saw he absolutely had to go after Trump. And as for the DA in Georgia, she's a tough, yeah. tough lady. She was not reluctant to go after Trump, but I wish it, she had brought some indictments already. I don't know what's going on with that. She yeah. said imminent. She said imminent in January, or was it February? Um, but anyway, it, it hasn't felt imminent to a lot of people that were still waiting for the shoe to drop. So maybe she's reluctant in some way too, or maybe she's building just a gargantuan I guess she Rico just, case or something. She might be thinking, yeah, that, that might be exactly what it is. That just, but I think she's you know. going to deliver the goods in May. Uh, yeah, I, w I would agree with that. I think that's, like you said, the, the case that's going to uh, unravel him, definitely. And, and this is a battle to see whether the rule of law or fascism, I mean, this is part of the battle between democracy and fascism. The prosecutors represent the rule of law, which is key to democracy. And Trump's lie about, oh, this is my enemies being politically motivated and throwing in some anti-Semitic George Soros stuff. And even though I'm optimistic about the democracy prevailing here, I am scared about how long will it take to bring back all these fellow citizens of ours yeah, to the American values that we really are supposed to share. I mean, Liz Cheney and I share a commitment to the values of in the Declaration of Independence, in the Constitution. You know, she she took an oath of office to defend the Constitution. Yeah. She's honoring that. Her party is not, and it kicked her out. But we've got a political party that is no longer playing by the rules that they swear to uphold and defend. So I don't know how that ends. Do you ever wonder if it's going to turn into a like a tit for tat situation with all the all the legal drama? In other words, you know, now they try to go after Hunter Biden because uh, you know you went after Trump for this many years. This gang can't. I mean, stupid, stupid, stupid. I mean, I was so frustrated for so many years. Like from the Democrats were not calling out what it is. I mean, I, my, I began my. In 2005, I began my website. Uh, I said, what America needs now is a prophetic social movement. By prophetic, I mean, just like from Jeremiah to John the Baptist, the job of the prophet is to call out evil power, moral force up against immoral force. And the Democrats kept on pussyfooting year after year when, when W was president and when Obama was president, but not anymore. You listen to what people are saying, like Jamie Raskin mm -hmm. in the House and Adam Schiff in the House. And once in a while, even Joe Biden. I mean, they're calling it out for what it is. If they go tit for tat, they will look stupid. What has Hunter Biden got to do with America's public business? You know, he may be a jerk. He may have done some stupid things with photos, or he may have done what Ivanka and Jared did cashing in on yeah. the, his status. Uh, uh, okay. He he may have abused drugs. I've had that argument. It's not our public business. 
Yeah, I've had that argument. The sons and daughters or even nieces and nephews, they're going to cash in on that name no matter what. You know, it's just whether it they're doing it legally. It would be a temptation to any of us, I expect. I mean, there's legal ways to do it and there's not. I mean, it's not right. maybe fair, right. comparatively speaking, to me and you, but it, it's going to happen. Gwyneth, pa- Gwyneth Paltrow is the daughter of Blythe Danner. Exactly. I'm sure that Hollywood all the time. Yeah. screen. Yeah. So I, I, when Michael Douglas and Kirk Douglas. Yeah. When some people would bring that up, it'd be like, well, doesn't, wouldn't that happen with any big name senator or, or anybody? Their kid's going to ultimately. But the, the, the the tit for tat would be, you know, like the, the Republicans are always talking about, I mean, not the Republicans, but very prominent ones. They're going to impeach Biden. I heard that Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying she's going to impeach Biden for Trump being indicted. Stupid. I mean, how stupid can you get? <laughs> if that's their tit for tat, they're just going to lose on the tit and they're going to lose on the tat, you know, it's to impeach Donald Trump for trying to pull off a coup d'etat is not comparable for a Justice Department bringing charges against a guy who's committed the worst crimes in the history of the country, the very worst things because they are like a dagger pointed at the heart of what has kept us a decent country for over two centuries. I mean, to try to make that equivalent, go ahead, make my day. That would be my position if I, you know, to the extent to which I can be a spokesman for the impeachment of, of Donald Trump and the complete defeat of a ridiculous, destructive, fascistic Republican Party. But then there's a whole bunch of people who just believe this. I mean, it's a yeah, good amount you, of people and it's intelligent no, that's people what I that say I know. troubles me. And, and I live with them. Yeah. You know. You know, here's here's the deal, or a deal. My wife and I had a social a dinner party mm-hmm. with two other couples. My wife works on the electoral board for our county, and she has become so enamored of this Republican woman who's one of another one of the three people on the board. And there was a sort of uh, a social event that placed us together at a table for six at a restaurant where I met her and her her husband. These two Republicans. We really got it on. It was a wonderful evening. And I publish a piece in the newspaper every week challenging Republicans. And I've developed a relationship with a guy who's a Republican who comes in and comments in a very civil way. And it's somewhat challenging of me on my condemnations of the Republican Party to which he gives his allegiance. But we have become close in our civil exchange. So we had two couples over. One with my, my wife's partner in the electoral board and one where the man in the couple, my uh, interlocutor online where my pieces appear uh, every weekend. And we had a wonderful time. The rule was we wouldn't talk politics, but they were wonderful people, except somehow they give their allegiance to a political party that has none of their virtues that is assaulting all of their virtues as they play out in the national level. So how do we deal with that? My mission with my pieces in the the newspaper is basically taking on that job, though I don't have any idea whether I'm accomplishing anything. It's how do I bring good and decent people back so that their goodness and their decency governs their politics? And I've got a piece on Daily Cost right now where somebody said, I'm doing the Lord's work. (laughs) <laughs> I think I mean it figuratively, but yeah. maybe literally. 
and that the only way we'll bring it back is to have caring, compassionate, respectful, civil exchange with our fellow citizens. And I'm very aggressive in the prophetic mode. Yes. But we're, we're enacting an interaction about these issues in front of whatever audience it is that goes online to see what's going on. I don't know if we were, were read by dozens of people or hundreds of people. Uh, you know, this is not the New York Times. It's not going to be tens of thousands. But anyway, we do what we can. But we do have a national task to undertake over the next, let's just say, generation. Part of the problem will be solved by older people dying off. You know, even in science, they say that the old paradigm loses to the new paradigm not by convincing people who used to believe in the old paradigm, but by those people who held that dying off and being replaced by a new generation that's thinking new thoughts. Yeah. I think that that's part of Thomas Kuhn's work in the structure of scientific revolutions. But if even in science, where you can have a community of people who are supposed to be respectful of uh, an intellectual process where the truth one's uh, evidence dictates... If even there you can't get people to shift their paradigms, you know, a lot of it's going to depend on reaching the younger people. I was going to say, you could see some of that with uh, Gen Z and maybe even the younger millennial. They're much more apt to hold corporations and popular figures, I guess, political figures accountable. The Disney DeSantis stuff is directly correlated to the. That is another a little of a battlefield here, yeah, right? Isn't it, for that same you know, fascism thing. But the youth didn't accept that Disney could stay, you know, apolitical in that, and that's why they ended up coming out. Well, against- what is, what, is, what are, the, are the youth doing anything right now to support Disney in their battle with DeSantis? I, I noticed it in the news lately is DeSantis. Yeah, that Disney outsmarted DeSantis and control their destiny. Yeah, I don't know per se now what's going on with that. I just know. I'm keeping up with it a little bit, but I know basically, I, th- I think it's something with the special governing district. Um, and basically, before they were dissolved, they signed a deal giving Disney full control over all the development and inspections. Basically, whatever DeSantis was trying to do with this board to oversee Disney had no authority. So I don't know all the ins and outs. I just know that. Florida state government versus the lawyers at Disney is probably a bad deal for DeSantis. Uh, yeah, they, do you think they, so? But when you look at a lot of a lot of the things the corporations take into consideration, and I know I actually had someone who was an HR rep on, and it's a little different, but he was talking about Gen Z in the workforce. Uh-huh. And okay, let me backtrack a little bit because I'm getting uh, out of sorts. Gen Z, who's the generation after the millennials, uh, they came of age during the Great Recession. Uh, Because of this, they tend to be skeptical when it comes to how businesses or brands or politicians operate and influence society. And that skepticism has led them to have some pretty high expectations for the businesses that they choose to work or support. Uh, it's very different than my generation, which was Gen X. Uh, we we were skeptical, but we just kind of accepted everything in a skeptical way. But this generation, it's 
it's just not enough for companies to have these like nice sounding mission statements anymore. Gen Z wants to see real concrete results. And to their credit, they're willing to participate to make that happen. So you have to figure that that will translate politically in a big way shortly. The, I would the, think. the younger people are the age cohort of the young. I don't know exactly, you know, in terms of voting, the gap between the young and the old in today's elections is very strongly weighted blue in the young and redder in yeah. the old. Now, I was born in 46 and, and, um, you know, I was part of the counterculture and, 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 and then there came the, like the eighties during Reagan. Counter revolution. Michael J. Fox plays this conservative youth. Uh, who's got oh. liberal parents. And, that, and I think that was emblematic of, you know, you look at the, you know, lot, Reagan was getting a lot of young people supporting him. As the I yuppies, that we used to call them. Is something that like that. I, yeah. I mean, I don't young urban that. professionals or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Well, that's what yuppies were. I yeah. didn't know. What, I thought that word was just part of the language now. Um, yeah. But the what the Republican Party has become is definitely alienating a generation that thinks that Roe versus Wade had no business being overturned, that thinks that uh, somebody being gay is, you know, no big deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, my generation hadn't uh, arrived there. Right. Uh, and, and who thinks that, uh, you know, climate change is an existential threat to, to their future. Yeah, it, that is going to be part of how we solve things, assuming that we s survive to yeah. do that. But I, I, I also feel just in my heart, I want the Republicans like we had at the dinner table to yeah. come back. I, I know that they care about values that are important, but I'm also concerned that there are a lot of people who don't care about those values that are actually excited about having a strong man criminal type who, who never gives in, who never admits any mistakes, who says, I am the solution. They like somebody like Trump. They see him for what he is. You know, and I don't know how big that is, but it's bigger than I think it ever was when I was growing up. The, the strong man. I could never like a Mussolini. As you can see him on those pictures oh, on the those, balcony, yeah, strutting. strutting himself. You know, that's ugly as far as I'm concerned. But there are people who loved it. Yeah, well, it's funny because that's a joke now to see. But back then, that was actually like people loved it. Right? Woody Allen uses it, uh, footage of Mussolini. Uh, in his movie uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, to uh, he's attacking a, 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 another character, yeah, played by Alan Alda. Yeah, the, the people loved it. Uh, you know, man on horseback. They, people love a strong man. I don't know if if there's ever any healing those people. I, they may be beyond. Does that strong man come from, you know, towards the end of the seventies and eighties? The Christian right rose. Before that, the Christians really, from what I understand, didn't didn't take part in the political yeah. process. And yeah, they were. They yeah. look up to one God. I mean, it would make sense that they would look at a strong man and almost the, in the they, same way. Right. Then came uh, Jerry Falwell. Yeah, he was the the big. Uh, and then the son of Jerry Falwell in Liberty University, which is in the district where I ran for Congress. Yeah. He then becomes happy to embrace a guy like Trump, who's just the opposite. The opposite of, of yeah. Jesus' teachings. Yep. 
So, you know, one of my concepts, the better human story, uh, the, my life's work, an integrated way of understanding the human situation. One of my, my concepts is brokenness versus wholeness. And it's wholeness that's life serving and brokenness, which is, is manifestation of the, the things that degrade human life and that threaten human life. And the brokenness of somebody who represents himself, like uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., as the religious leader, the Christian school, and then embraces a political force which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, what, what we're supposed to be striving for, uh, here in the human world. That's a sign of rather grotesque brokenness. And so there's also a brokenness when you've got people like my neighbors, a lot of the neighbors, and the people who are around that dinner table who are such good and decent people. And then apparently without awareness of the contradiction, not seeing that what they're supporting is the opposite of their values. And, you know, I, I've driven for years now to understand how that, how that happens. And I don't. I, I don't mind a conservative. And I feel like my interlocutor on the newspaper, you know, online, is the kind of guy who, I mean, I've never really quite talked to him about policy matters. We, we're always sort of like dealing with, um, you know, the, the ongoing battle or something like that. Uh, it's interesting. We haven't talked about policy more. But that's what I used to talk with people about on the, uh, on the radio. Uh, back uh, when I did a decade's worth of conversations with conservatives. And trying to find a higher wisdom that take, yeah. takes my piece of the truth and your piece of the truth and puts them together. That's how, that's how I would introduce each show. And, you know, that's fine. But what I troubles me is that here's a really great guy and he's not taking Liz Cheney's position. Yeah. How, how does that happen? Does he not see what's clear in front of our eyes? Uh, how, how does he not? He's This guy re, is a retired Navy colonel. You don't get to be a colonel with some of the responsibilities that he's had in particular without being, you know, he's taught at the war college or something like that, you know. This is not a guy who, if you put evidence in front of him, doesn't have an IQ to put it together. You know? yeah. Anyway, I, I, but um, I feel really gratified that I'm able to have these public exchanges with this guy in a, caring spirit he 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 ended his last comment saying to I, my wife's name is april I, i'm i'm wishing you and april have a great weekend because i hold the i hold the two of you in the highest respect yeah yeah what a guy you know yeah. after i've been pounding him for for failing the moral test you know uh so you know how do we save the souls of good people yeah i think of american politics as like a teeter-totter. If you have more good people on the good side of the teeter-totter, that side will sink down to be able to control things. 
But if you've got a lot of good people who've been dragged across the fulcrum, uh, somehow, you know, that I don't understand. I mean, this guy, I don't know that he'd vote for Trump in 2024. I don't even know for sure he voted for Trump in 2020. Yeah. But I bet he did. So that, as far as I'm concerned, that means that for that election, he got pulled over the wrong side of the fulcrum. And if that happens, too many good people on the wrong side of the fulcrum where good people belong from the one good people belong on, we lose control of our goodness loses control of our country's destiny. And we will be governed by the opposite. How do we bring those people back? All right, uh, just to play a little bit of devil's devil's advocate here, there's a huge swath of this country that believes that radical elements have taken over the Democratic Party. You know, like underneath the name is some hidden socialist agenda that's simultaneously trying to unravel whatever past version of America they think was perfect somehow, you know, as if. America didn't have these social or economic problems throughout their history. And I'm just saying that's how they see it. Yeah, I would say, point out to me, okay, assuming that you know something about uh, uh, democracies, uh, advanced societies who are mm-hmm. democratic, like in Western Europe and Australia and Canada and Japan, point out to me, what policies the the Democrats have represented that would even be considered left of center in yeah. any of those countries? I say that a lot. I say that about Bernie Sanders, honestly, a lot. He would just be a moderate in just about any European country, I would think. Well, I, I don't know if I go so far as to say be a moderate, but the Affordable Care Act didn't even very bring conservative us back. compared to. The, yeah, but I mean, every we still are the only advanced democracy who have citizens that are uh, have no health care security. Yeah, so, but there's know. a belief there that there's this radical agenda. That particular challenge. I mean, I've written a dozen, maybe two dozen op-eds, explain parts of it. What but I- fundamentally, I don't see how these people characterization of what the America's Democratic society, uh, party is like, which is uh, to the right of uh, conservative parties elsewhere. Well, see, I think it's one of those things where we go back to these culture war items. A lot of people will point out culture war things, you know. Uh, Abortion's allowed in a lot of other societies. Uh, trans and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I just I don't see this huge takeover. The only extreme left i ever see is the stuff that people talk about on the media that's online and that's not representative of the whole country well, at all well, what you can left. what you can do is you can say well let's look at what democrats have passed is it i do extreme? say that all the time i'm like well, what is have it, the democrats done the last 20 years is it extreme that we uh at long last after being given a d uh, by yeah. uh uh, infrastructure engineering societies the, that we've embarked upon repairing our roads yeah. and bridges. Is that extreme? Is it extreme that, and then I, you know, go on and on about some of the things well, in, I, I in do the Inflation Reduction it. Act. I mean, things like, you know, when I look at Bill Clinton, he was a very, very, you know, 
corporatist privatized a lot of oh, things. I mean, yeah, he was, that's a very he, yeah. he, he like was you just said, the one, and the he big was trying era. To triang- triangulate, yeah, he yeah, was, the triangulation strategy. Yeah. Yep, I was brought up, you know, with a father who was just called himself a child of the Enlightenment. And mm-hmm. He was a social thinker, but professionally, he was an economist, and uh, and and he was a guy who who um, always thought that. You know, if you want to know what's true, you look at the evidence and see what it shows. I thought that's the way the world works. So this throwing out this phrase about radical left agenda, you know, that phrase is not one he invented. Right. You know, he's getting that off of Fox News or the people that they have, you know. You know, like to say that the, that the, my interlocutor who's, who characterizes these prosecutions as politically motivated. I don't understand how you can have a, a brain in your head, pay attention to the evidence, and believe that. I will say this, though. The evidence isn't shown. You, you almost have to dig because I feel like the news, at least if you're looking at 24-hour news cycle or even online, it's so skewed towards opinion at this point that presents itself as fact anybody who reads the new york times or the washington post or 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 listens to npr or watches do you think more people do that than watch fox news though well that's but you know i think that if i watched fox news if i let's say i'm an immigrant to this country i land uh, you know, on Ellis Island or whatever, like my grandparents did, uh, and enter the United States. I don't know from nothing. And let's say I, I, I watch Fox News. I don't think it would take me long to figure out what was going there. You know, they, they'll change directions in ways which all by itself would alert me that there's something fishy going on here. I don't understand. How an intelligent person watching Fox News. I know people always say, Oh, well, you know, these people are in an information bubble. You know, if you're only exposed to, uh, you know, right wing media, you know, you, you don't know what's going on. But do you, I, I understand that that's somewhat true, do but you I still think don't. Some of that is you create a worldview in your head and to break that worldview is almost like, so there was an example. I forget what it was called. But they're talking about, let's say, somebody like Hannity. And let's just say Hannity realized he was wrong. Is he going to go out there and say it? Or He's made millions of dollars going against anything that had any kind of liberal agenda in it. You know, let's say now he's like, you know, climate change is happening. It, he, he's got friends who are all climate deniers. He's made his money – you know, well, deny what, what, what's your what's your point about that? My I, point I, is that if you have a worldview and you built a world, uh, you built a life around a worldview, friends who think a certain way, you know, what you watch, what you read, it, it's difficult sometimes to break that. Well, I mean, yeah, life is, it gives you all kinds of difficulties. You know, some people have to get used to being in a wheelchair. Yeah. You know, uh, some people have a colostomy bag. You know, I wouldn't want to get u- re- used to either of those things. And, I, you know, the idea that you would find out, oh, geez, I've been wrong about a lot of stuff. You know, that doesn't appeal to me. But what we see in this Dominion case, they know what they're doing is deceiving people. So, you know, Fox News isn't the only one who throws out 
when they throw out words like cancel culture on these things, yeah. on these channels and things like that, people automatically assume that has to do with, you know, radical leftists, Antifa or something like that, or George well, Soros. I mean, what, you know, the, 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 it's a false picture. I, mean, I agree I actually, with you. I actually, uh, you know, I could get into criticizing aspects of liberal ca- cancel culture. Yeah, of course. It may not be quite as obnoxious to me as with the cancel culture DeSantis is trying to impose with power, which is the more fa- more fascist than just a bunch of people clamoring to have people change, you know, change their views on this thing or that thing. But if you form a picture of, of what's actually going on, it's not as though what's everything on the democratic side is wonderful. No, no, it I isn't. agree. You know what I've been, I have a piece I haven't published yet saying that I always sympathize with the oppressed, but I've observed that when the oppressed are liberated, it doesn't automatically make them whole and not broken and, you know, bearing the scars of having been oppressed. And, you know, I use the, the example of the French Revolution, which I think was justified to overthrow the, the aristocracy get, that looks so ugly at the beginning of the tale of two cities, you know, yeah. but that led to the reign of terror. And I see excesses like that on the left uh, on certain issues now that don't please me. Yeah. But that but hasn't re- won out. But, but the, you know, when we're fighting for a politics in which all the major players are basically committed to trying to do good for the people in the country. Yeah, we can have quarrels about things like that. I even think that abortion is not a complete cut and dried issue, morally speaking. I agree with you a thousand you know, percent. The, you know, I have a position which is basically the government should stay out for reasons which I can articulate. But it would it would sadden me greatly if I was party to a child of mine being aborted. Yeah. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. Yeah, I agree. So there's room there's room for people to discuss. Well, what do we do with all these different things we believe? But I, I don't think that we we need to focus on a radical left agenda. Yeah. You know, you, you got no business voting third party when American democracy is on the line. And if you don't know America's democracy is on the line, why don't you? That's how I felt about it, honestly. Voting, you know, um, I always got upset when people used to yell like don't vote third party it's a throwaway and i'm like you don't have a right to tell somebody that however i could see in the last two elections why someone would feel very strongly about that well my solution to that problem is to have frank choice voting i agree with that you way, a thousand percent that way you you can vote for whoever you want and if they if they're not going to get be one of the two main vote getters agreed then your vote will go to who you want second best. Yeah. And I so on. A thousand percent. And, uh, yeah. So I, I, I really like that solution. And I wrote about that uh, a few weeks ago and got into a quarrel with my Republican friend. <laughs> yeah. But voting he, he, is so weird at the state and local level because it's winner takes all. Yeah. And then when we get to the national level for the presidency, it's the electoral college which allows you. I mean, well, you could conceivably lose by seven million popular votes and win the presidency. I think was what I heard. Well, Election. Hillary did win by you know, two seven and a half million. million or something. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree on that score too. I, the the emphasis they put on states when in 1789 
when these individual colonies had banded together to win their independence. And then they tried a loose confederation, which didn't work very well. Yeah. And, and then they were saying, well, we got to pull it together more. They had to make a lot of compromises that made sense in the context of their not thinking of themselves as the United States. Uh, when very I taught uh, American history, one of my mentors said, pointed out, and this, I guess this isn't original to him because I've heard somebody say this. Um, before the Civil War, people would say the United States are. And after the Civil War, they would say the United States is. So it was a transformation from a, a community of states into a whole. Yeah. So the, the, we're, we're stuck with the Electoral College for no reason that's good for the present circumstance because we've been the United States is for a century and a half. But we're stuck with that. And I, I don't know that the Republicans are going to. Republicans have the power to prevent our doing anything different. They will not let us do anything different because the Electoral College gives a lot more power to real estate than to people. Right. The red map that we see when even when a Democrat wins the election, if you do it uh, a congressional district or county by county, the map is overwhelmingly red, even if the, the Republican is losing by 7 million votes. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate our, what our founders did. And we haven't really talked about why democracy is such a big deal. You know, that's sort of an implicit in what we've been saying this whole conversation. But what they did was not a perfect document, particularly for today, with respect to the Electoral College. But they had to make compromises. This isn't the only compromise. Oh, made. of course. Yeah. I, well, you yeah. know, it's a it was a country of two and a half million people. And I think you're right. That view, I remember... I remember reading when, when Jefferson would say, my country, he was talking about Virginia. You know, it wasn't, oh, yeah? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't like, <laughs> yeah. you know, people used to say, yeah. this is my country, but they were talking about their land. And Robert E. Lee had that mentality that when Virginia seceded in April of 1861 or something like that, even though he had taken an oath to be part of the United States Army, he could not fight against his country, so he, he became a Confederate general. I also read somewhere, well, Madison, I think in his letters to Jefferson, maybe not, maybe it was to whoever, whoever it was, I know it was Madison, he thought that Electoral College would be gone within, you know, 20, 40 years. They, they oh, just did said, he really? Yeah, so huh. it, it, one of the things, you know, I read a lot of like Joe Ellis and, um, and a couple of those guys. But yeah, he he supposedly towards the end said it was it was a terrible system, but the mechanisms there to get rid of it, they didn't realize how hard it well, was yeah, be but, now. But but changing the constitution has not been easy at any point. Uh, no, you know, and I can't. Let's see. When was the last time we we we, we, we made it Clinton? so that we'll never have a four four presidential term like uh, like FDR was elected? You know. Yeah. Was that the last time we had an uh, uh you know what? I think there was the what the twenty seventh is 20, the, the last one? Well the ERA was gonna be a, an amendment, but it sort of that, fell just short that of finishing. Died, yeah. That, that was um But anyway, it's not easy to amend the constitution. Um Oh, no law varying the, they can't vary the compensation for the services of senators and representatives. That's a that's, that's a, the last amendment. 
I guess oh. that everybody has the same. Uh, is that what that is? Same compensation? I, I don't know. No law varying. I don't know the story behind that one. Yeah. That was when and Clinton presum- was in office. Presumably, yeah, I was alive at that time. I don't know how they slipped that one past me. <laughs> yeah, May twenty nineteen, <laughs> May twentieth, nineteen ninety two. That's the well, last. It must, it must have been pretty. I, I be, I'll have to look into that because it doesn't sound very interesting. And no court shall ever second guess that decision. Oh, I don't know if you're allowed to say that in the Constitution. Is that part of the wording? Of the That's what amendment? I'm trying to say. That's what. No, yeah. I don't think it is. I don't think you. You're not I allowed can't. to tell the court he can't. Yeah, can't I was going to say the Constitution. Uh, all right, so it just says very simply: no law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. Well, in any event. Uh, yeah. To, to get get it back to basics a bit, we should elect our president by a popular vote. It doesn't seem yeah, hard. Yeah, I mean, democracy and, does it that way. But we have had the Electoral College defect in the system for 200 and whatever it is, almost 40 years. Yeah, you know, it, it hasn't been ruinous. It's been more the last 20 years that it's been an issue, but, yeah, the elections that were won in the in the electoral college but lost in the popular vote are two: 1876 right. and 2016. So, well, Bush, no, we Bush, Bush lost the popular vote too. That's why I said oh, in the last, right. yeah, the last oh, 20 years we've had two. Oh, right, right, right. And, and they're the two, big, the two guys who probably a, led us on this road. So basically. Those were biggies because of what the Republican Party was becoming. Right. The Republican Party was becoming something that was repudiated by the children or grandchildren of like Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater and, yeah. you know, people who said things, you know, in Bush's second term. So, yeah, the first thing we got to do is take all possible power away from this Republican Party and either have the Republican Party transform itself back into a a halfway respectable party or have it be replaced. Like, you know, back in the time of the Civil War, the Whig Party in the 1850s fell apart because, well, because of the issue of slavery. And it was replaced by the Republican Party. So we either need a new conservative party or we need this party to repudiate and drive out the, the fascistic element that's taken it over. Well, it's going to be a while before we know. You said, I mean, it's generation. Well, the job to repair our country from all the damage that has happened is multifaceted. Mm. And I have said in previous conversations with you, I've only slightly alluded to it here, that if the liberal side of America had not been deficient, weak, and blind, it never would have come to this. This is a systemic problem. The fascism is there on the right, but the weakness and blindness that allowed it to rise to this level has been there on the left. And the prosecution of Donald Trump is one of the ways in which that side of American politics that stands for American democracy is ginning itself up to fight and win and defeat the force of fascism. So we should welcome these prosecutions and we should realize that it has to be fought out in the Republican Party as the whole and in the Republican base, which are inflamed with this brokenness that Donald Trump has exploited. I think it's good to end it there. 
why don't you tell us where we can find you and read some of your articles and, and anything else you want to let us know about? The main link is to, that my website is called a better human story, one word, dot org. There I'm working to organize my life's work. And it's got, got an area, which is my messages to the conservatives, which has a lot of these challenging pieces. And it's got a portal which has the name A Fateful Step, which has a series that presents my large vision of what this human story has been, what we are like as creatures, what's happened to us, and what are the nature of the challenges that we face if human civilization is to survive for the long haul. And they're all an integrated picture. And anybody's interested to see whether I deliver that integrated picture that makes sense and that I say might help us navigate the coming years and thrive on this planet instead of destroy ourselves, uh, I hope they'll check it out. Well, thank you, as always, for coming on, and we'll talk to you again. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a great opportunity for me. I'm a man on a mission. I know you are, and I always appreciate it, so... Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon.